It's a joy to be with you tonight. It was uh, also nice to uh, visit Cedar Church this morning. I had the opportunity to bring God's Word to our brothers and sisters there, and I can bring you their greetings. And uh, it's always nice to uh, see the broader kingdom of God as He is at work in a multitude of places. Well, I invite you now to take your copy of God's Word and turn to uh, Ezra chapter 7. Uh, this is the uh, first time in this whole book, after the first six chapters, that we actually come to Ezra in his book. And so, as we think about all that God has done so far in these first six chapters, uh, we have God's uh, ordination of the return of the exiles, all that He was doing to make that happen, and then the rebuilding of the temple. And uh, as we learned last week, we know the reason that the temple was rebuilt. It said in chapter 6, verse 14, they finished their building by decree of God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And so chapters 1 to 6 are basically a long introduction for what we get to learn tonight. And as we come to God's Word, I pray that we would learn that Christ matures us through study, through obedience, and through teaching, that Christ matures us through study, obedience, and teaching. Now, we will learn to study with our heart, to obey from the heart, and to teach to the heart. I'm going to focus the whole sermon on verse 10, uh, but we're going to see by illustration how all the other pieces of this chapter uh, are connected to that one particular verse. So please follow as I read Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 28. This is the word of our God. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzai, son of Bukai, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, and son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh, seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his, of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven, peace. And now I make a decree that anyone of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in their kingdom, or in my kingdom, who freely offer to go to Jerusalem, may go with you. 
For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall, with all diligence, buy bulls and rams, lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold you may do according to the will of your God." The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls, uh, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree to all the treasurers in the province beyond the river. Whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of the God of heaven requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons." We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to this passage of your word, we acknowledge that uh, you are the author, not only of this chapter, not only of the entire Bible, but of all truth that has ever existed in the history of the universe. And so as the one that has the power of all truth, it is your Spirit that you have promised will lead us into an understanding of that truth. And so we ask for your help this night, that you would be the one that is exalted in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives, and we would make you known among all nations, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If Satan took over Grand Rapids... What do you think our city would look like? Now, we have some pretty big imaginations, right? What do you think would actually happen? Well, one pastor said, 
All the bars and pool halls would be closed, pornography banished, pristine streets and sidewalks would be occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing, the kids would answer, yes, sir, no, ma'am, and the churches would be full every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. I think we need to let that sink in for a moment. Even if we had every outward sign that we long for of living in a moral society, and yet Christ is not preached, then the devil will still have his way. What would mere cultural reform do except for delay the ultimate destruction of humanity? But if Christ is not preached, then we don't know the way of salvation. And if we don't know the way of salvation, no matter how good and moral things appear, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, there is no greater and more terrifying thing that could ever be spoken except those words. But we would start saying things like, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? We, we try to make sure our children obey and make sure they come to church and we work hard, provide for our families, we help the poor, we try to reform society to make it moral. But if Christ is not preached, if our primary aim is not trusting Christ, growing in Christ, and making Christ known, then our pretty city would still be damned. Now, the minister who said this was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is my spiritual grandfather. He led Dr. D. James Kennedy to faith in Christ in 1953, and Dr. Kennedy led me to faith in Christ in 1997. I think Dr. Barnhouse put his finger on something that makes us all very, very uncomfortable. He is condemning a mere outward faith. But I think that the believers in Ezra's day faced exactly the same problem that we do. Fifty-seven years have passed since the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. They are back in the promised land after generations of exile. They finally have the temple again. God's people are back on top. But that is when temptation for God's people comes the strongest. And that is what we see in our text what good is having the land? And what good is it, as Jeremiah had already said, to have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, if God's Word is not preached? And so, Ezra came. Which Ezra? Well, his genealogy is given to us, and we see that Ezra is a direct descendant of Aaron, the first chief priest, right? There's other names that are listed there that have a wonderful history in Israel. Hilkiah was the one who we learned was the priest who found the book of the law and brought it to King Josiah, who was a wonderful reformer in his own day. 
Going back further, Phineas was also a great reformer in Israel at the time when there was gross idolatry across Israel. The point is, Ezra, though born in Babylon, he is, he has an incredible heritage of godly priests who are reformers in Israel. And now his earthly king, King Artaxerxes, by decree of his heavenly king, is being sent back to Israel. Not back, he's never been there. Being sent in his experience to Israel for the first time, but as the people of God are going back, right, he is called to reform the worship of Israel so that it is yet again God-centered. He was the right man for the job, as we learn in verse 6. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Kind of reminds you of Joseph in Egypt, right? The Lord was with him. And so this Ezra came, and we are told again in verse 9, for the good hand of his God was on him. And now after a little bit of a longer introduction, we have our sermon text, verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. These three verbs in that one verse form our outline, and we're going to have uh, various ways that these verbs are illustrated throughout the text of chapter 7. But first, we're going to learn that we will mature in Christ that if we are to mature in Christ, we must study with the heart. Now, have you ever set your heart on something and then it didn't happen? You were disappointed, and that hurts. And so when you think about setting your heart on the law of the Lord, you can have certainty that it will come about because God's Word stands forever. Now, the importance of the heart cannot be overstated. The human heart is the control center of our lives. To be clear, I'm not talking about the organ that pumps blood through the body. The way that the Bible talks about the heart, it's the most comprehensive term for the inner person. Our conscience is another synonym. It occurs over 700 times in the Bible, and it talks about the heart thinking the heart believing, the heart feeling, the heart deciding, deceiving, breaking, mending, understanding, intending, trusting. Right? It is the core of our person. But to help us know how we can mature, we need to see the difference between the head and the heart. Right? Knowing the difference can actually have eternal consequences. And so first, consider the first subpoint of studying with our mind or our head. Now, obviously, our minds are very important, right? Growing in knowledge is a critical step for us to grow in Christ. If you don't understand something, how can you ever lock onto it and believe and make it a conviction in your life, right? I would never say that studying Scripture with your mind is not important. It's just not everything, right? We have to move on from that, right? Scripture says to renew our minds is essential. Any person, if we think about it, even an unbeliever who is committed to reading God's Word 
and trying to understand what it says, for example, about the way of salvation. Right? Even an unbeliever could, could read and see the clear teaching of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, it doesn't mean that the unbeliever is going to agree with that necessarily, but he can, with his mind, understand that is what the Scriptures teach. Now, anytime we come to God's Word, we might be tempted to only engage it from a head level. We may tell ourselves from time to time, oh, you know, I read the chapter, did my duty in devotions, I can move on in my day without guilt. And that may not describe you, but some of us might do that from time to time. But if we're going to mature, if we're going to go to a level of becoming more like Christ, then we have to go down to that next level of studying with the heart. Now, with our heads, we learn the indicatives. We understand the facts as they're revealed about who God is and what He has done. But we have to respond to those facts. And so, with our hearts, we might reject the truth because we don't want to be accountable for our sin. We might rejoice in what we learn, the fact that Jesus saved a sinner like me. Or we might be indifferent because, I mean, I've heard all this before, right? It's nothing new. It's just the same old stuff. Or we could also be distracted by higher priorities in life, like what's for dinner, right? I mean, that is what our heart does all the time. It says in Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's constantly being, you know, pulled aside to the right and to the left. John Calvin said the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. You see, we were created as worshipers. That is who we are. There's nothing we can do to change our essential nature as worshipers. The problem is, is we tend to worship according to our own will rather than according to God's will. And so we desperately need God to move our hearts, to turn our hearts back to Him, to strengthen our resolve to seek Him first and His righteousness on a daily basis. And so I love Ezra because Ezra set his heart on studying the law of the Lord. And by way of illustration, we read in Artaxerxes' letter in verse 14, for you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. This means Ezra is commanded by the king to study. Right? Ezra had to know the law so well that it provided the lens in which he could view everything else. He was also to make inquiries about the people of God to see, are they conforming their lives to the law of our God, or are they again falling into idolatry? And sadly, Nehemiah tells us it was yet again idolatry. Now, yes, they had come out of exile. But we cannot forget the reason they were sent into exile as the discipline of God in the first place, right? God had warned them repeatedly right when they came into the promised land. He said to them many, many times, take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods 
and worship them. And so for us to learn tonight from Ezra, and for us to mature in Christ, we need to turn from a mere outward faith to a heart that is sold out for our God. How do you do that? Right? Sounds great, Pastor, but what does that look like? How can we actually do that? Well, Scripture gives us a lot of different admonitions about how we, like Ezra, can study from the heart. And so he, uh, Scripture says in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. The things that we value, if they are not things the Lord values, those things can steal us away from what is most important. There are so many different times that we see examples of this in Israel. And that is why we can only mature in Christ when our heart is set on seeking first His kingdom. But only if we are principle-oriented can I seek God first. If I am willing to submit to God's authority, not in word only, but from the heart and in the priorities of my life, then I am conforming my values to His values. But if I am primarily feeling-oriented, right, then when something hurts, I just want to get away from it, even if it's something God has commanded me to do. Now, I can tell you from personal experience that our hearts can deceive us about being angry with God. Our heads know very well that we have no justification for doing that, and yet our hearts sometimes feel so hurt by something that has occurred in our lives that we are angry with the Lord for having let that happen to us. And we might go so far as to say we want Him to hurt the way that we hurt, and so we rebel against Him. But our tender and gentle God patiently draws us back to Himself. He connects with our hearts to help us realize that we were created for a reconciled relationship with our God, and He will not allow us to keep Him at arm's length. Now, we may need trusted brothers and sisters to come alongside of us, to help us to see the ways that God can redeem the most painful experiences in our lives for good. I just began a book called Angry with God by Brad Hambrick, and I cannot begin to tell you the things the Lord has uncovered in my own heart and the ways that He is molding and shaping me, helping me to understand how much I had held Him accountable for things years past that I have experienced. The loss of innocence in this broken world is something that God redeems to mature us in Christ. But we can't just connect with God at the heart level and assume, okay, now we're like Jesus, right? We learn secondly that we also have to obey from the heart, right? First study with the heart, and then obey from the heart. This is the shortest part of the whole text, right? To do it, right? Simply just do it. Now, some of you are primarily word people. Others of you are uh, action people. You're doers, right? Stop all the talk, and let's just do it, right? 
Nike people. Well, the Lord has gifted every person in the body of Christ in particular ways, and He uses the different strengths that we have, and yet every single one of us, regardless of our strengths, are called to study with the heart and to obey from the heart. Even the pagan king, Artaxerxes, knew that people are known by their fruit. And one of the easiest examples is to put your money where your mouth is. Now, that's not a Bible verse, popular saying perhaps, but it does demonstrate how serious we are about obedience. And so, by way of illustration, we can hear Artaxerxes' heart in verse 17. With this money, then, you shall with all diligence buy bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do. How? According to the will of your God. This earthly king recognized the importance of honoring the king of heaven, right? The one that rules over more than just an earthly kingdom. He should be worshiped rightly in the way that he has spoken to us. The way that we should order our worship is according to his will. Even the pagan king understood that. He said, with all the leftover money that you have, right? Go on a great vacation with your wife. No, he didn't say that. He said, do. Do according to the will of God. Now, God's people very frequently fall short because we're all talk. We don't do. We don't put our money where our mouth is sometimes. And so, he says in verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full, right? Don't just do it partially like you know, I just check the box and I move on. No, he says, make this something that you have done completely, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. Now, that kind of does reveal his heart to us, right? Pagan king hedging his bets, right? Making sure the God of Israel doesn't bring upon the wrath, right, that he did on the people of Israel, taking them out of their land, doesn't want any of that happening to him and his sons. So, he's just hedging his bets here, making sure they go appease this God down there in Israel. He knew. He was taught by the Jews, right, how many of them were in leadership, right, in the kingdom of Babylon. He knew Isaiah 29. He understood why they were sent into exile. Even the pagan king gets it. He knew that the people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. You see, this is what was happening with Israel. And this is what led them into exile in the very first place, and that's the last thing that Artaxerxes wanted for his kingdom. And so he wanted to make sure Ezra got there and established what was according to his law. But we have to realize the fear of the Lord is not just a commandment taught by men. It is a state of the heart. We either fear Him 
and we repent of our sin, or we just assume we can appease Him and move on doing our own will. But if we don't actually fear the Lord and exercise obedience according to His will, then He will indeed bring about His discipline. Why? Because our good, heavenly Father loves us, and He will only ever do what is best for us. Now, I can't think of a more critical image to illustrate this idea of what it means to obey the Lord from the heart than what the image that Jesus gave us at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Just think about it. Jesus has just finished preaching the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in the history of the world, and He concludes it with this illustration. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd was astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What a powerful image. Now, I grew up in Florida, lived there 40 years, went through hundreds of hurricanes, right? And you see the footage of what Ian did, and you see what it is to have a house literally built on the sand, very, very sad. And he's saying that could be us. If we just come, we hear it, and we move on, as opposed to hearing it and saying, I need to change something. I need to turn to my God, confess how I've offended Him, because that's the person that matters most, and recognize that I need to build my house on the sand. It's not just in the preached Word. It's whenever God's Word is brought to our ears, right? When we study it in our life groups or in our Bible studies, right? When we read it as families or read it by ourselves, however the Word is coming to us, we are called to be doers and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. True maturity is demonstrated in the fruit of our lives, We are justified by faith alone, but true saving faith doesn't remain alone. It bears fruit in our lives. And so genuine faith in Jesus, He says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And one of the things He commanded us to do was to teach others. So we learn, first of all, to study with the heart, to obey from the heart, and lastly, to teach to the heart. He says, very simply, Ezra was called, and so are we, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now, someone once said, those who can do and those who can't, hmm, is that really the way that he's taught? That's not a biblical model. Yes, people say that, but that's not what's being described to us in Scripture. God's model is to bring his word to our hearts 
right, to transform those hearts so that we would obey Him by faith, and then as obedient people, teach other sinners to do likewise, to be changed in the heart and to follow Him, right? Even in the Great Commission, right, teaching them so their heads are big. No, teaching them to obey, right, and that's what he's emphasizing, right? And so, again, Artaxerxes saw that some of the people were ignorant. He understood that, right? There's some that, you know, grew up and were young, and they, they really didn't have a great system established quite yet, and he was concerned about them. And so, it says in verse 25, and you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them, what are you supposed to do, Ezra? You shall teach. Now, I think it's beautiful how our one verse, verse 10, gives us the outline for the entire chapter, illustrated even in a pagan king's letter. Ezra must be about teaching the ignorance so that they may know the law of the Lord more clearly. Now, this is one of the reasons that Protestant reformers put a premium on preaching. Now, next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, and we get to start our celebration early, not with a Protestant reformer, but with an ancient reformer of Israel. Now, Reformation is not easy work. Why? Because the majority of people are not just ignorant. The fact is that in our sin nature, we are secondly unrepentant. Verse 26 says, whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Now, We hear that and we kind of freak out a little bit. We're like, wait a second, (laughs) that sounds pretty severe. Yes, it does. But at this particular time in the history of Israel, the church and the state were one, right? The state could bring about, right, a, a requirement of obedience to God's law, even with the power of the sword. Now, in the new covenant, we know the Lord separated those powers, having the civil magistrate handle the power of the sword and the church be Uh, primarily ministerial in our application of God's Word. And so, when we think about what God has done to bring about His Word being spread among all nations, right, He has formally called pastors, elders, deacons, teachers, right, to get the Word of God, and then every single believer sharing as witnesses with everyone else. Every one of us is called informally to teach. That's a responsibility of every single believer. We're to be equipped for the work of ministry, to build up the body in love so that we may demonstrate the character of Christ more and more as the world sees that Christ is really among us. And so Ezra is so clearly a figure of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. His character and his competence demonstrates a head dedicated to God's will, a heart sold out to God's ways, and a will committed to do God's work of teaching. But in the same way, this sermon cannot just be a pep rally of, be like Ezra, right? No. 
That's moralism. That's not the call that we have. We have to see from every text of Scripture that one greater than Ezra is here. We need to see that everything we love about Ezra is the fact that he reveals Christ to us in different ways. But Christ is the real thing. He is the object, the only object of our faith because He alone lived the perfect life that we failed to live. Ezra was still a sinner. He alone died the death that we deserve for our sins. No one else did that. And He is the only one to rise again from the dead so that by faith in Jesus alone we have certainty of eternal life. The world needs that good news. And so we have to point people to Jesus in word and in deed. And so Ezra needed leading men of Israel to come with him. He can't, he's not a, he's not a lone ranger. He wants to have a multitude of teachers, right, to bring the word to one another. Now, don't be deceived. Scripture does tell us that no matter what you teach, you're going to disappoint people. Okay, Jesus was the only perfect preacher, only perfect teacher, and he disappointed a whole lot of people. They didn't say what he, they, people wanted him to say. But many people fear becoming a teacher because of James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. People read that, they're like, Phew, right, stay away. No, that text is written to those who have zeal without knowledge, Right? They're overly zealous, and they're going to trip all over themselves right? and probably lead some people astray. So he's trying to rein back the zeal and say, okay, let, let's get you prepped a little bit better. But then it's balanced by Hebrews 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained, how? By constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is directed to the majority of the church, to those of us that have been in the church for many, many years, that you should be teachers by now. That's the norm of maturity. And if we've resisted taking our role to influence others and for us to point them to Jesus, it's very possible that we may not be as mature as we think. We might really still be just on milk ourselves and not realize it. What we have to see is that the very process that believers go through, it's this process of trying and failing that God uses to mature every one of us. We try to share the gospel with unbelievers, help them get established in Christ, build one another up in the gospel, and recognizing that we have the opportunity to comfort others with the comfort with which we have been comforted. It's the challenges and the hardships that we face as the body of Christ that are the very thing that God will use mature us to be like Jesus. And it's only when we finally say, 
Lord, apart from you, I can do nothing. That is how and when we will mature. Amen. Father, it is so true that we need you. None of us have arrived. Every one of us needs your grace. Thank you so much for those who you have placed in our lives who have ministered to us, who have been an example to us, who have helped us in so many different ways for us to grow. We're so grateful for the fact that you understand our hearts. The fact that regardless of how things come about, however much we fail in trying to help others, Lord, that you redeem all of it. We are so grateful, Lord, that you are at work and that all the power exists within you so that our dependency is on you and you alone so that you get all the glory if anything good might happen. We know that you will complete the work that you've begun, and so we rejoice in that truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.